Hi, this is Binny Klein. Jeff Pivar is an amazingly talented musician. Not only is he a virtuoso guitarist, he plays a range of other string instruments and composes and produces from his studio in Ashland, Oregon. He has played with Ray Charles, David Crosby, Ricky Lee Jones, Joe Cocker, Bette Midler, James Taylor, the list goes on. Jeff is a sought-after session musician who composes movie scores, music for television shows, and advertisements, in addition to composing original music for his own releases. Jeff has co-written many songs that have appeared on recordings of David Crosby, Graham Nash, and other artists. I had a chance to do a deep-dive interview with Jeff in July of 2023, as he told stories of exceptional musical moments and collaborations. Hey, Benny. Hey, Jeff. Am I talking to you? Are you in Oregon? I'm in Oregon. I'm in Ashland, Oregon, right over the border of California. I'm really grateful that you could take the time to uh, come on to my show. I have been a fan for a really long time. I saw you at the Maple Tree, is it, mm-hmm. Cafe? Like 2010, okay. A friend told me about this amazing guitarist who was like returning to his hometown in Connecticut. I was really blown away to use a cliche. Just the particular style of guitar that I got to see you play up close. I'm a big fan of a certain kind of guitar playing, and I still don't really know how to describe it. It's a kind of special sort of Jeff Beck, David Gilmore, Jeff Pivar, clean, crisp, but full of passion sound. That's all I can tell you. Well, you know, the guitar players that inspired me all had a voice on guitar, kind of like a vocal, you know, and when you bring up Jeff Beck, he's one of my biggest uh, influences along with, let's say, Larry Carlton and Robin Ford and Lowell George, and they sang with the guitar. They're, they're not just playing licks. They're not trying to impress you with how fast they can play versus uh, telling a story with their guitar playing. And so that's something that uh, always hit me in the gut in regards to any musician, no matter what they do. Uh, any singer, any, you know, musical composition. I'm looking for melody. I'm looking for the soul. I'm looking for being taken on a journey. And so that's m- what I attempt to do when I'm playing music. And the guitar players you all mentioned are certainly all part of my um, attempt to it's kind of like the the guitar, the baton gets passed. And so the way that musicians influence each other, I kind of feel like um, that's one of the great gifts of, of being a musician, being a music appreciator, and being someone who aspires to develop their music as time goes by. All of the stuff that you've heard becomes part of the embroidery of your perception of what the beauty in music is. And I just have been affected by so many uh, incredible musicians, both uh, from listening to them, listening to their records, as well as touring with them, you know, from Ray Charles and Joe Cocker and Ricky Lee Jones and Donald Fagan and 
the list goes on. Of course, my dear friend, David Crosby and Crosby Stills and Nash, you know, I was listening to that music when I was a kid and uh, how amazing to be seen by them and, and invited into their, into their tribe, you know, and, and then making writing music with David and, and his son, James Raymond, the CPR records, you know, I'm, I'm just so grateful for all these roads that I've had a chance to travel and all of those roads and all of those experiences are part of the embroidery that I feel I'm able to kind of mix around uh, this, you know, musical experience that I've had and how I've been affected and then the way that I play. So interesting because that's so different than, say, the world of academia where mm-hmm. they talk about the anxiety of influence. <laughs> and I think that in music, it certainly is not, and not for you from what you've said, an anxiety by any means. Mm-hmm. It is part of your being now, all of these players, all of the people that have influenced you. You're self-taught musician? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I never, never really took any lessons of any sort. I just... You know, I just watched and listened, and I'm I'm really not a at all a very good sight reader. You know, I I don't I didn't go that route. I kind of was able to listen to s- someone playing and sit down with the guitar and figure out what they were doing. So, uh, you know, I I do understand some of the mathematics of music. Of course, there's there's chords and there's scales and there's scales that kind of work with chords. Uh, and and there's so many different levels of academia in music that is wonderful for people who want to um, go that deep. I, I do wish that I learned how to read music really well when I was a kid because it would have given me just yet, a, Crosby used to use this term, another arrow in my quiver, you know. So, but <laughs> that being said... I mean, the Beatles didn't read music, you know, and it certainly didn't stop them from making great music. So it's really, it's not a precursor to being a good musician. Being a good musician is, well, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, right? But um, I'm I'm able to um, offer my own personal experience and my own personal view of the world of music through my uh, you know, what, what I bring to the party. And fortunately, a lot of the times that I've been hired to play with these iconic musicians or anyone that I'm bringing my own vision, I'm not given a sheet of paper like you could give to a hundred different guitar players and where they would say, okay, play this versus I like what you bring to the table. So you do what you do. And, uh, and that's kind of what, has been a real amazing opportunity for me to mold my abilities as a continuation of someone else's vision. You know, when Ray Charles wants a certain type of guitar playing, well, I, he loves soul music. And I learned very early on, I could get Ray Charles to screech in delight with <laughs> playing the right kind of blues note, you know, and wow. What an epiphany for a 27-year-old kid who got an opportunity to play with Ray Charles. I can't believe that I'm getting this guy to like screech in delight and and react in a way from, you know, me kind of 
figuring out, all right, what would be the coolest thing I could do for Ray Charles? And it's it was the less, least amount of notes with the most amount of feeling. You have mentioned a number of amazing people that you've played with and amazing people that you've been influenced by. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you look into your your history, the groups that you played with, it's just a, an incredible amount. I mean, you did some, some time with Phil Lesh and Friends, Jazz mm-hmm. is Dead. You mm-hmm. did the David Gilmore project yourself recently. I want to ask you, come back to and ask you about that. And you've played with David Crosby and you've played with so many different people that would probably have their own sense of what collaboration is. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to ask you some of your thoughts about the difference between collaborating with established performers, you know, who have a very distinct sound and maybe even very well-known hit songs and doing the kind of thing that you're about to do throughout the state of Connecticut, which is your own version of things with friends and your band. Mm-hmm. Well, um, it's a great question. I, I will say this. Um, I am a big fan of, for lack of other terms, performance art or improvisation or winging it. So <clears throat> I don't have a quote-unquote rehearsed band. Um, I assemble phenomenal musicians uh, who are dear friends, who are kindred spirits, who in their own uh, right are, are established artists, um, are soulful, beautiful communicators with their instruments. And so... Yes, I do a certain amount of pre-production. I put a song list together. I put, I send people charts so they can be familiar with songs. But those are simply frameworks uh, to what we're going to do. Because every time any of these songs are played, it's going to be a totally new and different, um, um, you know, assimilation of of whatever everyone is feeling at that given moment. Uh, whatever tempo, whatever individual combination, you know, that's, it's this synergy of all these incredible spirits who, who are great players. And that's a, a lot of what I love to be able to do when I do my own gigs, when I'm collaborating with other artists as per your question. So my job is, and, and my interest is to inspire these musicians who um, invite me to be part of their ensemble for me to kind of, okay, think, I'm, I'm thinking how I can apply what I do to what they do and how I would work on, let's say, my guitar sounds and which guitars I play and the kind of general approach. You know, certain musicians are more R&B, some are jazz-influenced Every situation is unique and you go in there with your best intentions and you hope that what you bring works for them. And I'm always open, you know, some artists don't say anything because they like what I'm doing. And some artists might go, you know what, on this tune, could you go a little this or a little less that or whatever? So it's always very unique. And I love uh, the challenge of being able to apply what I do to what um, is correct for the musical experience going on. 
what you said about uh, collaboration, it makes me think of the ancient art of alchemy, uh-huh. uh, which, which is kind of fascinating and strange and weird in and of itself, you know, where supposedly people were trying to make lead into gold. <laughs> and then later on, psychologists would do some uh, digging into, well, what is that a metaphor for? You can't really make lead into gold, right? But the alchemist Bibles were like these elaborate tomes of very detailed instructions. So the idea was that out of that alchemy of, well, at least two entities would come a third. And that would be the sort of precious result of the coming together. Have you ever had any like incredible alchemical moments that you can share with us. I know oh. I'm kind of putting you on the spot, no, but you I, played with so many amazing people where it just was I have zillions like... of them. I have zillions of them. And, and I use that analogy a lot. Oh, you do? Uh, yeah. And, and, you know, not in, in that exact way to, that you said it, it which is- Not as ridiculously as I put it. No, yet. not at all. Not at all. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's a little simpler just in regards to the, uh, my own definition of synergy, right? So you have person A and person B. And when person A and person B collide, whether it be standing next to each other in a room or having a conversation or putting on instruments, a third entity is created totally unique and you can't find it anywhere else in the entire universe and so that's this little um, miracle of what uh synergy is for me and and it's something that i've grown to uh not only notice and take you know take note of but realize i'm never gonna play like this mm this person i mean i'm gonna kind of do what i do but but their spirit i mean when i look across the stage and i see david crosby you know smiling at me it's, it's something it's just something that's uh, one uh, of the you know i i, I just uh, recently yeah. <laughs> um today a little while ago um i i asked alexa to play something i said play some songs by david crosby yeah. And I was just so filled up. Yeah. As I can see that that you are. I'm, I'm still in shock, but you know, uh it's amazing he lasted as long as he did <laughs> with how he treated himself, you know. And and God, it was such an amazing um, you know, you asked this question before about sharing some of these things. I mean, I listened to Crosby Stills and Nash. I I was so moved by their music, by their you know, the CSN couch record, they call it, I guess. And then Deja Vu. And I mean, many of their records, David's first um, solo record, if I can only remember my name, you know, these records are just like part of the embroidery of my life. And then I, I just remember being asked to, well, I, I was touring with Mark Cohn. We were opening for Crosby, Stills and Nash and, and Crosby and Nash were big fans of Mark's music. And that's why they asked Mark. And I was touring with Mark as a duo, just the two of us on the stage, which was a phenomenal opportunity for me to um, grow as a musician in a more intimate musical situation versus, you know, a full band with drums and all that, where my contributions were very much impactful 
in a duo. There's only two things going on. And in fact, there were times when Mark wasn't even playing and I was playing either guitar or there's one tune that was playing fretless bass, you know. But anyway, I remember David and Graham coming out to our sound check and, and I saw David from the side of the stage looking at me while we were tuning up our guitars and I started playing one of his songs, you know, just to kind of pay homage, you know. And he smiled at me and that was just the beginning of like 30 years of us playing music together. From from that experience with Marcone, um, David and and Graham asked me if I'd be interested in working with the two of them, you know. And I wish at the time I had said, you know, Dave, I've got some weddings back in Connecticut. I don't know if I could make it. But, you know, uh, I, my jaw hit the ground. And, um, you know, a few years later, we did some touring, David Graham and I, and I, and they gave me a song list. And four, so, four days into the tour, they tore up the song list and they asked people just to raise their hand and, and, and call out tunes. And these were songs I had never heard. So I was doing performance art with them, you know, where they would attempt to play songs that I had never heard. And I often use the term, well, there's only 12 notes, got to be one of them. Um, you know, I, I have a technique that I learned through a couple of guitar players that I, are big influences, Larry Carlton and Robin Ford, where they would use a volume pedal, uh, which uh, gave the guitar and gives the guitar a lot more dynamic range because you don't have to take your hands off the instrument to either raise or lower the volume or come in with like a, what you could call a swell, almost like a cello does. So if I didn't know the song, I could kind of play celloistic lines around the songs that they knew. And admittedly, their pieces aren't so technically involved that one wouldn't be able to kind of guess where it's going or weave some kind of melodic line around it. So anyway, it was so much fun and they were so thrilled you know, because they immediately saw how hungry I was to contribute to it in, in such a, you know, joyous and um, unique way. They were, they had played with Stephen Stills, yet another iconic musician. And, you know, as time went on, they all kind of went through their own personal demons, dare I say. And Stephen, you know, wasn't treating his body very well, you know, and uh, kind of wasn't practicing as much as he might have in the early days. So when I entered into David and Graham's sphere, they were very excited that there was this young, you know, energetic um, guy who was so passionate about music. So that led to a period of time where David pulls me aside and said, listen, I, I have a story to tell you. I was contacted by my son who is 30 years old and I had never met him. I was on the road with uh, the birds, you know, and when I was 20, had a relationship with a woman. Um, I don't know if it was a one night stand or whatever it was, but um, this guy, I, I've been contacted by his father. I met this young man named James Raymond and he played me a tape and he's really talented and david said i want to find out if you'd be interested in putting a band together with me and my newly acquired son 
And wow, what an opportunity to be a voyeur and a participant in a father and son reunion. That's incredible. I mean, like somewhere on the web, it just says Crosby's son, keyboardist James Raymond. But this mm-hmm. backstory yeah. is so emotionally profound. Oh, it's it's incredible. And, you know, uh, David tells the story of James coming in. Well, they met right around the time that David's liver was failing and people... This is, you know, I don't know how many years ago now, but oh, not, late 90s. And, and uh, you know, because of all the poisoning that David Crosby did to his body, you know, freebase cocaine and, you know, other, and heroin and who knows what else. And back in the day when he was, as he put, he used to put it, he was a, a chemical waste dump. Mm. Um, but he was trying to channel the loss of, of the love of his life, who, who, died in a car crash, um, a, a woman he was madly in love with, Christine Hinden, I think her name was. Anyway, point being, uh, James met David through a, a whole bunch of amazing um, possibilities of them crossing paths, because uh, a lot of times this stuff doesn't happen, where, where the, an adopted child uh, who, you know, James was adopted by a family and it was his adopted father, as I understand it, who reached out to David Crosby and said, you should meet this young man. And um, anyway. Um, so so, so that, gr- that little incredible alchemical bunch of geniuses, <laughs> Crosby, Pivar, and Raymond, you did some studio albums, right? We did two studio records and two live records uh, as CPR. And when the first one came out, it was heralded as the best music Crosby had done in 20 years. Um, you know, there, we have we have fans, but it's funny because the record business uh, then had changed and there was so much, you know, I mean, if CPR maybe came out in the 60s, it might have been, you know, much larger than what it was because the music business had, the radio business and, you know, big corporate uh took over music. It wasn't um, like uh, as celebrated as it was back in the day, but that's a whole other story. The the fact is, as uh, David and I joked, you know, uh, you know, how records will go gold or platinum. I think our our record went balsa, but um, a a lot of people were fans and, and we toured in the States and we toured in Europe and, you know, we have uh, our, our own little, fan base and interestingly there was um we got signed by samson records and very recently well there was a documentary that that samson did for us it was called cpr through the music and it was out on vhs tape we get to give you the the history and uh right around the time that david passed um i noticed it was not available anywhere it was out of print or whatever so i loaded it up to youtube so if anyone wants to see cpr playing live at the at the montreux jazz festival um there's a combination of the performances and interviews with the three of us and it is oh that sounds fabulous i'm gonna look yeah yeah it's on youtube was um is the one the studio album that came out in 2001 just like gravity is that uh, available that's the second one second. i uh, i was told uh i was informed by david about in the last five years bmg re uh issued 
the two CPR records. So they are on both uh, both records, the CPR, the original record, and then Just Like Gravity, which is the second uh, studio record. And both of those records were reissued. I'm bringing you back to your, and I was getting a very distinct visual image of you when you were talking about playing with people and sort of atmospherically, if you will, contributing to what they were creating on stage. And it made me think of film soundtracks. And that, of course, leads into some other, for me, very compelling thing that you were involved with, again, a while ago, but still fascinating. Talk about going into the cave with John Anderson a little bit, please. Well, well, I wasn't in the cave with John Anderson. Um, You weren't? No. Oh, no, I must have that image. I must preserve that image. No, that's fine. You're in the caves in Oregon, and John Anderson comes in, and you're that's 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 your own little dream, which it's a beautiful one, and I I would love to visit. All right, give me the truth. Okay. Just give me some truth. Yeah. So here's how this all unfolded. This is a wonderful story, uh, and it, it might take a few minutes to explain, but the precursor is... I've always wanted to put out my own record and it was totally daunting to me what the heck I should do for my debut outing. On one hand, I want to show my diversity as a musician, but if you show, because I'm such a diverse musician, is it possible that my, that if I put on a little bit of this and a little bit of that, a little bit of this, it, it won't work as a piece unto itself. It'll be too schizophrenic. And then if I go a particular direction, like do a blues record or whatever, then I'm kind of termed and, and kind of notated as, oh, well, he's just a blues guy. Or if I do a fusion record, oh, he's just a fusion guy. So just I want to just, I want, right. yeah, I just wanted to try to have something that really showed my unique ability and it kept me from putting anything out most of my life. And fast forward to about uh, what is it now? About 12 years ago, something like that. I get asked to do, to score music for a PBS documentary on the Oregon Caves National Monument. So the idea how that works normally is a documentary will be filmed. They send it to a musician. The musician is told, okay, I need music here. I need music there. I need, you know, a bumper, blah, blah, blah and music is scored to the actual video. Well, this was not the case. With this one, my friend said to me, look, I want music, I want guitar music for this documentary. And he hired me to do it. And three days later, he calls me back and goes, you know what, instead of doing this in your home studio, I talked to the people at the Oregon Caves and they agreed if you want to come in with your guitars and record in the caves themselves. And my, my, the voice on my shoulder said, whispered in my ear and said, Jeff, don't prepare anything in advance. Just go to the caves and let the caves inspire whatever you're going to play in this, for this record. Actually, it wasn't a record. It was, it was music for a documentary. I was improvising music for the documentary. And so I went in with an acoustic guitar, a six string acoustic and an eight string mandocello with a desire and the idea that I'm going to play whatever 
peeks out to me, whatever speaks to my heart at that, at any given moment. And my idea was, okay, well, it's a video and they're going to probably want different types of musical emotion at any given time. So I'm going to play one tune kind of up and exciting and fast. And I'm going to play another one mysterious and this and that. And I'm going to play another one. Yeah, that was really my, <clears throat> my only idea that I would give them a bit of a, for lack of other terms, a plethora of sonic goodies that they could use that um, would hopefully depending on what the video was portraying at any given time, they would have some songs and pieces to choose from to support that video. And so I went in, uh, I really, I, I, was, I was given no, um, no direction at all, except halfway into the recordings because basically it, they were like okay here we go they do a slap you know so they could align the recorder or whatever they were doing and and i'd start a piece and i would you know just kind of go and i would create um i would compose on the fly and each one i would maybe tune the guitar differently i would be you know one I, there's one piece on there that's very kind of almost Ravi Shankar influence. There's, uh, there's all these different things that, that were coming through to me uh, while I was there, and I was definitely being influenced. But this uh, woman who was involved with the, uh, with the taping, she said, you know, Jeff, I just want to tell you that the caves were, uh, they were formed by the shifting of tectonic plates. Oh, Could you do one like that <laughs> and so the first song on the record uh, which i i think it was the sixth one i recorded because we were halfway through but but it's called plates and so i took the pick on the guitar you know and then i hit the guitar and then i just kind of was trying to emulate what it is that she was saying you know kind of the earth moving and banging against each other and long story short I finished these 12 pieces um, of all different styles, and then they sent me the tapes. They sent me the Pro Tools tapes, and then I could edit if I wanted to. So some pieces are exactly the way I recorded them. Some pieces, because I was improvising, it I would come in with an intro, and then it would kind of take me a minute to get to what I would call the nugget. And then I'd find a nugget and I'd use that as kind of a motif, if you will. So when I was editing this stuff, I'd listen to the intro. I'd listen to where it came to the nugget finally. And some of them I got to the nugget quick and some of them I kind of meandered for a minute. So I was able to kind of go, okay, this first 40 seconds, it's not really serving the tune. I could edit it out and then just kind of put it together. And there I came up with 12 pieces of just guitar whether it was six string guitar or eight string mandocello. And they used just that guitar music for the documentary. And my job was done there. But then my friend calls me and says, listen, the people at the, at the Oregon caves really love this music and wanted to know if you'd be interested in them in, in it being released as a CD of that, that could sell at the caves. And I said, cool but 
I now need to adorn this because the idea of the solo guitar music is underscore for a documentary. Well, the uh, organ caves were discovered by the shifting of tectonic flights and nice guitar underneath versus a piece of music that is standing by itself. And I am a composer, I'm a producer. Um, I, I hear in layers like a like somebody who would write a symphony, you know, although I work with not symphonic music, but stringed music, uh, stringed instruments and things like that. And so what I decided to do was take all these instruments that are all over my house on the wall that I don't even play very well, accordion, harmonica, I have a fretless acoustic guitar someone gave me, which ended up playing, I'm using on a lot of the guitar solos on the record. And the thing with fretless guitar, it, it, you're kind of, it's, it's not an easy instrument to play, but you know, when you have your own studio, you can kind of take the time to kind of get the right take, if you will. Um, I had banjo, I had all these different things that I don't play very well or play it very often that I, I wanted to add embroidery to these pieces to flush them out. Kind of like if you take a Christmas tree and you stand it in the corner, well, you got to put some bangles on it and some lights on it. And so I would do that with each song. And then as time went on, I realized, you know, I want to get a couple special guests who play instruments that I don't. So I got, I got, um, uh, a, a fantastic musician from LA that I've known who plays on a lot of movie scores and he played some violin and I got another violin player who plays with Tony Furtado. His name is Luke Price and he's on that first song plates. And I had met John Anderson about three years prior, two or three years prior. I was playing a duo show with Ricky Lee Jones at infinity hall and John Anderson unbeknownst to me was in the audience and he was playing the next night and the owner of infinity hall at the time dan hinks invited me to come back to see john anderson i had the night off and i'm a big yes fan and i went back and saw the show and dan said hey you want to come meet john i was like yeah so i meet john he goes oh my god i saw you play last night with ricky lee jones you're incredible here's my email if we could ever collaborate on something i'm an email away so I had this one song while I'm adorning all this music um, with overdubs. There's one song I decided, well, first of all, there's, there's, I was inspired by a song that David and Graham had uh, done on one of their records. And the song is called, Who Will I Be? And it, the song starts off with, uh, they call it glass harp. But what mm. it is, is when you take a wine glass and you fill it with water and you run your finger on it, it, it produces this tone, right? So I took all the wine glasses I possibly could get in my house and filled them with various levels of water. And I'd turn on my machine and I would fill it with enough water. I'd, I'd turn on, you know, Pro Tools so I can tune the note to a harmony of what the track was. And I overdubbed about eight different glasses kind of like a choral uh a choral a, a choir ah, 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 ah. you know all these notes that were sim symbiotic to the piece and then um i took all those tracks and moved them forward and faded them up so the the, the beginning of the song that john anderson sings on uh river of dreams starts with glass harp and it may be eight, eight of them just 
and then this guitar comes in. The thing that's really interesting to me that I realized later on, it sounds like a yes song. There's two yes songs mm. that start like that. One is roundabout because mm -hmm. it has this keyboard shimmery Hammond thing before the acoustic guitar comes in. And another one is and you and I, which starts with this oh, listening. Yeah. Well, anyway, unbeknownst to me before I even knew that John Anderson was going to sing on the song, I'm producing a song that ends up sounding like a yes song, you know, kind of cosmically. But anyway, I send, I, I decided I hadn't talked to John in quite some time. I mean, I hadn't, we only, I don't, I don't know if we've ever actually talked besides Infinity Hall. We've emailed each other numerous times. So I write John, I have this piece, I have a title, I have a working title, River of Dreams. I write John, I go, John, you know, we met at Infinity Hall, blah, blah, blah. You said, you know, you'd like to collaborate. I'm sending you a song and I'd like to find out if you want to just sing la la's to it because he does that la 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 thing you know you could do that or if you want to you know anything you want to do i sent him that track and then i decided to send him two other pieces so he could f understand a little bit more depth of what the record is um as well as show the diversity of my musicality because there were a couple other pieces that were much more intricate musically and I wanted, part of it was I just wanted to show off a little bit. I wanted him to see, you know, the diversity of, of who I am as a musician. But the song that I sent him was probably one of the simplest ones. Uh, just a very simple demodal kind of thing. Well, I sent him the tracks at 10 a.m. on a Sunday. Three hours later, all three tracks come back. Harmonies, overdubs, lyrics and a letter saying thank you you made my day oh i have a wet spot under my chair i can't even, i mean I, you know my goosebumps had goosebumps so i realized at that moment in time you know i'm working on this wild dream of a jeff pivar debut record that i've always wanted to do that is so unique and it, it, it's it's doing all the things that i had dreamed of in regards to a it's really unique it's not your usual guitar player play as fast as you can or play fusiony or whatever it's just it, it shows all these things that i want to show but i can't have the iconic john anderson on three songs so i wrote him i said if you're cool with it i'm going to feature on the one song and i'm actually going to harmonize with you if you're okay with it and i'm going to edit one more verse onto this song because there was there was only three verses and there were just there were just lyrics that he had done but I wanted to have a fourth uh, verse with him doing the la la's because I'm just big fan of that yeah. John Anderson, you know, la la. It's just it's part of who he is to me, you know. Anyway, so lo and behold, I got the iconic John Anderson on this record, which is called From the Core. I decided to call it From the Core because it's from the core of my desire. It's from the core of my dream to have a record that encapsulates or attempts to encapsulate the diversity and the soulfulness and this record because it's, you know, the precursor or the, the kind of the definitive direction of this record is it's all 
instruments you can walk in a cave. There's no electric guitar. There's no synthesizer. I did play a fretless bass because I'm a, I'm a big Jocko Pistorius fan. And that sound, which Jocko does like on Joni Mitchell's Hegera, is uh, changed my life as far as what the bass guitar can do in a somewhat symphonic way. Anyway, oh, from the I mean, core. this is that that <laughs> from the core is like a demo of your soul. Yeah, I, I can tell. I can tell now a little bit more. I'm glad I asked you about this. Yeah, because I can tell more about what you said earlier about being a big fan of performance art, because yeah. everything that you just described is just an ecstatic portrayal of something so unique and so personal and so much based on the location for one thing yeah, sure and also the freedom that you were given it, it, it's breathtaking really the freedom to just I, go I, in and be in this incredible place well you're listening to wpkn and bridgeport and benny klein and we're talking with a, a master of plate tectonics and among <laughs> other things a multi-instrumentalist jeff pivar jeff are you an extrovert I've been told that I have more energy, energy than the Energizer Bunny. My idea here is that so in one lifetime, you only have so much time. So I've decided I'm going to live five lifetimes in one lifetime. That's kind of, you know, what my passion is. Um, I follow my heart. I go after my dreams. And, and that is, you know, something that is uh, so beautiful uh, for me to be able to communicate to others and to students. I'm actually, this summer, I'm going to Italy to do a, a six-week tour there with my wife, Inger. Part of it is uh, I'm doing lessons uh, for, for a CEO of a company in Holland. Uh, we're visiting Inger's family in Denmark. Uh, we're going to do a ton of dates in Italy. And then I've been asked to do a clinic at the music school in Rome which is what an honor. Um, so that's one of the things, you know, because I'm not the most technological, you know, studied musician, I um, sometimes kind of go, well, really, Jeff, are you qualified to do this? But then the, the other side is, well, Jeff, you are, you know, there's not a lot of musicians who have the track record that you do, the experience that you do. And so, in keeping with what I was kind of just saying, I love to encourage people, whether you're a musician or not, to go after your dreams and don't listen to that voice that says, well, I would have loved to have done this, but I probably won't, or I probably can't, or I'm not good enough, or any of that. I've kind of proven to myself, even though I don't read music, and even though I have my own self-doubts and my own fears, I've decided to not empower my fear. I've decided to make friends with it, maybe, you know, maybe mm -hmm. allow it to be there and keep you humble, but to go after it. And what's the worst that can happen? A friend of mine who's a very dear uh, friend of mine, musician, he goes, Jeff, what's the worst that could happen? Maybe somebody wasn't entertained. <laughs> <laughs> I can only do what I can do. I'm not Sven Gali. I'm just a guy. I'm not, I'm another schnook who plays guitar, you know? <laughs> You're making me think of things that I didn't get to ask you. Blue Floyd. 
Yeah. Well, there, there's a, a man I met, uh, just to try to encapsulate it quickly, there's a man I met after I toured with Phil Lesh, because I got asked to tour with Phil Lesh, and I had to learn 70 Grateful Dead songs for that tour, which was very interesting, because I was not necessarily a Grateful Dead fan, but I had great respect for their music. Anyway, uh, to do that tour, I, I became much more familiar with their body work and was very, very impressed with, with how wide their swath of music is. Anyway, I get contacted by a guy after that tour with Phil Esch to tour with a band called Jazz is Dead, featuring three of my heroes that I never dreamed I would be in a band with, Alfonso Johnson on bass from Weather Report, T. Lavitz and Rod Morgenstein from the Dregs or the Dixie Dregs, whatever you call them. Uh, and here I am, um, arranging instrumental versions of Grateful Dead music <laughs> to, um, you know, in a jazz fusion format, all instrumental. Um, so uh, I, I ended up actually uh, financing and producing a record of the music that I had uh, arranged for this ensemble. And I got a number of guest musicians and that, that record is called Grateful Jazz and it's a masterpiece. And I say that, you know, not trying to sound too cocky. It's it's really, really good. My friend Rod Morgenstein, who's, you know, this dregs drummer, he said, this is one of my proudest accomplishments in my life. So that wow. just wow. Yeah, wow. The guy who hired me for Jazz is Dead also contacted me to join a band called Blue Floyd, which had um, some members of the Allman Brothers and, and from uh, various, you know, these types of groups where you're putting together what they sometimes call ringers, guys from well-known groups all together. Oh. So that's what the Gilmore Project is. And that's my most recent, uh, let's just say, project, side project, where this guy, Michael Gaiman, again, uh, said, all right, I want to bring together the bass player, Chasm Sultan from Utopia, Todd Rundgren's band, the drummer from Jefferson Starship and Utopia, an original um, Journey drummer, Prairie Prince, who's also an incredible artist. Um, and then uh, two guys from the San Francisco scene, Mark Karen, who played with Bobby Ware for years, and then Scott Guberman, who plays with Phil Lesh. It's a band that plays interpretive um, versions of Pink Floyd music, the Gilmore Project. And I'm the band leader and I'm the guy who plays the Gilmore solos when I feel it's appropriate to do them verbatim. And there's a couple solos like Comfortably Numb and Money. And there's a, just a few of them that's like, you got to have the Gilmore solo in there. It's, it's as important as the melody of the vocal. Are you so. going to do another Gilmore Project tour? We are, but we're we're slated. The next one is actually uh, a month overseas in February, uh, but that could always change. Um, and you know, it's kind of nice that we don't do it too often because that keeps it fresh and special. And uh, you know, some of the members of the band are are well, let's just say slightly challenging, but I love them all. <laughs> more on that another time uh i love the song there's no way out of here i think it might be one of the greatest rock and roll songs of we all do it time. it's a great song uh thank you so much jeff i'm oh, sure baby. we will be connecting and um thank well thank you, you Benny. it's an honor to be on your show and thanks for calling out on me and thank you for being so sweet to me and honoring you know this little crazy schnook who just plays guitar and dreamed of 
being able to do that, you know, as, as a life profession. And that's what I decided to do. And I'm still, the, the candle's burning bright and I'm 66 and it, it's going to be burning as long as it can burn. Thank you. Yep. Thank you. This interview was produced by Binnie Klein and Scott Shapley.